Hello and welcome to the Inspired Equity podcast. My name is Richard Putherer and I'm here with my co-host, business partner and wife, Nina. We are the founders of Inspired Equity, the London-based investment business that specialises in property acquisition and development. And between us, we are world record holders, international investors, prolific networkers, speakers and coaches, and it is our absolute pleasure to introduce our podcast. On this show, we'll be discussing all aspects of successful property investing, covering everything from simple buy-to-let properties to multi-million pound developments. We'll be interviewing industry leaders and hosting live Q&As with expert panels and keeping you up to date with the ever-changing and exciting world of property. Tonight, it gives me the great pleasure of introducing Dr. David Harwood. David is one of the UK's leading property trainers, having personally educated over 8,000 students in the intricacies of property investing and has mentored a further 300 or over 300 clients. His major, he majors in the strategy of HMOs, houses of multiple occupation, um, but tonight he's gonna to be talking to us about a slightly different subject. David also has a BSc honors in electrical and electronic engineering, He's a PhD in control engineering and mathematics, and furthermore, he's a trustee of two charities and volunteers for many more. It's also really a special evening for Nina and myself this evening because David was integral in the training that we received when we first started out our property investing training, and it, it um, makes me feel really proud to have him here on our podcast. David and his great wife Shirley have become good friends of ours as well and we love catching up with them whenever we're down in Devon. So David, thank you so much for joining us this evening. You're on. Welcome to the Inspired Equity Podcast. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Richard. Thank you very much, Nina. Uh, it's really great to, uh, to be in the same room as them. They're normally in the same room as me when they come and present to us. So it's, uh, they've turned the tables. So uh, um, very, very warm welcome. I'm going to be speaking about, so you've run out of money because we all do at some point. And I think it's really, really important that you get to grips with the fact that it doesn't matter whether you uh, had millions or whether you've got absolutely nothing, you've got to raise money in order to continue with your property portfolio. And there are many, many different ways of doing that. And I'm going to cover just a very brief few of those this evening. So. If you, um, if you, if you would uh, just bear with me for a minute, I'll just tell you a little bit about myself. Richard has kindly introduced me, and the introduction uh, said that I, I, I got a degree and a PhD uh, in sort of electrical engineering and control theory and all the different sort of things that you go along with that. I have to say, it took nearly seven years of my life to, to do that, which could have well been spent doing something else. I think. Um, but I have to tell you that uh, that wasn't the very beginning. I actually um, uh, also trained as a pilot in the Royal Air Force. Um, and it was at that point, somebody else guys actually decided that they were gonna control my future because a little bit after uh, um, I qualified as, uh, as, as a pilot, the doctor at a standard setting just said uh, standard sort of um, medical that uh, the annual medical that you have to have said I think you've got a problem with your eyesight I think you may suffer from a detached retina and that means you can no longer fly. Uh, 
I don't know anybody that goes into the Royal Air Force who want to be a pilot who then would want to stay in after, they, uh, after they've been told they can no longer fly. I could have been an engineer, I didn't want that. So I decided to go back to, uh, go back to university, but not before marrying um, my beautiful wife and uh, Rich has kindly mentioned uh, Shirley and uh, Shirley and I have been married since uh, 1977. Shirley also has a master's degree, but in social science, we have no interest in each other's topics at all. Shirley, Shirley started as a nurse. But I do have to tell you that it is her fault, absolutely her fault, that, um, that I got into property at all. I was head of engineering at uh, one of the universities of Wales and was just too busy to do anything else, really. Um, I, I had reached the sort of pinnacle of the career that I wanted uh, to be head of a university department after having less, left the RAF and the disappointment of not being able to fly. But that, uh, that sort of situation then led into being a sort of working probably, well, the same as any other executive would need to work. We were sort of doing around about sort of 100 hours a week. And, uh, you know, it is a bit of a myth that lecturers indeed uh, get all of the time off during the summer holidays. I certainly didn't get any. We have two very talented daughters. They're both very, very able musicians. Shirley um, had gone part-time anyway, bringing, being up sort of a part-time uh, nurse, but a full-time mum. And she saw the opportunity to go out and sell mortgages. And she was very good at it. And uh, soon became the sort of area manager, uh, again, part-time but she was uh, doing extremely well at the, at the mortgages, but she saw other people making a lot of money in property. She was selling the mortgages and we were doing okay, thanks very much. But she saw that there was a lot more money to be made. So when she saw the opportunity to go and do a couple of property courses, she went and said, well, I'm going to do it. And it was a bit of a life preservation issue because uh, I said, yeah, well, you can go and do it. And, uh, but I don't really want you to, you're already quite busy. Um, doing doing this, we're, we're, we are doing okay, thank you very much. And she said, well, I'm going to do it, even if it's over your dead body. She said, I really, really am excited about this. And she went on and the very first part, I wasn't with her on the mentorship that we did with a lady called Jill Fielding. Uh, I wasn't there at the, at the mentorship. I didn't even go on the courses. Shirley, Shirley, Shirley went, uh, went on those and she bought as her very first four properties for HMOs, four HMOs, ladies and gentlemen, that she was told not to buy. Well, you don't tell my wife not, not to do something. She'll go and prove everybody wrong. That's the sort of uh, woman that she is. So um, four HMOs and, uh, we, you know, th those HMOs actually took us to financial freedom almost instantaneously. They started to operate. They were student HMOs, not something that I would advocate now. But, uh, but important to, to note. Then I, I, I was back at the university. I was uh, studying part-time to do a doctorate. Please don't do that, anybody that's thinking about it. Um, and I got my doctorate in control theory and uh, went back into work into industry. So, um, and at the same time as, as doing all of that, um, I then got interested in property. I said to my wife something incredibly silly. I said, look, if we do this right, we, we, we can't fail. And uh, she said, well, I've been telling you that for the last uh, last 12 months or so. So I began to get involved and uh, the, the company that we were working with um, uh, wanted us to tell us the story. Shirley didn't want to tell the story, so I did. And that story very much then led us into the fact that they said, well, David, actually, you're not a bad presenter. So why don't you come and learn 
how to do some of the presenting and, and uh, we'll, we'll get you into those. So I, I did the presenting for uh, the sort of basic introductory courses. And because we were the only people to be doing HMOs because everyone else had been told the same as us, don't do them. Then of course, uh, they asked us uh, to write the HMO course. And uh, so we wrote that and I've been running that since 2005. So, um, you know, on, and averaging around about 80 to 100 students as Richard and Nina will, uh, will, will, will tell you because they, they came on the course. And of course they also now present um, their story on the program as well. And of course you can read Nina's great story on your property network in terms of, uh, you know, how to do an HMO properly in four weeks. So go away and read that as well, because they're absolutely phenomenal investors. Um, I became an international property mentor, and that was, uh, that was great because I got to travel all over the world, uh, mentoring people from Australia, New Zealand, Hong Kong, China, um, Malaysia, and, uh, you know, all sorts of places like that, which has been a fantastic opportunity. I no longer do that, ladies and gentlemen. I decided to uh, just take it a little bit easier and just invest at home. But one of, the, one of the important features of being able to do that is the free time that's been built up by having invested. I became financially free in 2004, 2003, 2004, something like that. With the, with the growth in HMOs and the buy-to-lets that we bought. Um, but we actually started with zero money, zero money, because um, I'd helped my mother-in-law and uh, my stepfather-in-law to buy a property in Spain. I thought it was a great thing to get my mother-in-law to go and live in Spain, ladies and gentlemen. So, so they did. And we helped them by raising money against our own house to help them buy a slightly bigger place than they were looking for in Spain. Um, Mum-in-law, unfortunately, has uh, has passed away since. So uh, my stepfather-in-law still lives in Spain, still lives in, in 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 the property that Shirley and I own. So, you know, we 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 do look after him particularly well. But the, the the aspect of becoming financially free isn't just about the free time. It means that we can support things that we love. Now, I'm a part-time minister in a church, and I work with the bishop uh, of the Congo, um, one of the bishops in the Congo in a place called Goma. And we actually support and um, pay for the teachers and for the buildings for the school that we, that we run there. It's called the Hope School. And there are some 600 orphans there. They are become, they've become orphans uh, because they are outcasts from society. They're not really orphans, they do have their mums, but um, their mums have been violated by the rebels. Um, and all the all the adult men have been killed and the sort of uh, teenagers from about 14, 15 have all been carted off and have become rebels, uh, or at least some of them have anyway. And, and that, that's something. And we, we are able to support these youngsters uh, through education. And uh, we, we, we do that absolutely willingly. And we have the money to be able to do it, which is absolutely uh, phenomenal. Um, one of the great things, you know, you've got to have a reason for wanting to do this business. Otherwise, you know, you'll, you will take some no's. No's are going to be something. No means not yet. And it, it, it also means that, um, uh, that you, you, need to, you need to understand the ways in which people think. I have to say that having taught some 8,000 plus 
students, um, I have to say, still only around about 10% of them go out and do anything. Um, hopefully you're part of that 10%. Um, you're going to need to build up a team of people to work with you. This is not something that you necessarily can do on your own. I mean, you have to go and choose the property, go and see it, go and negotiate for it. Um, and negotiation skills is, is another half hour topic. Well, it's easily another three or four day topic, to be, to be honest. But your team is very, very important. And, and so your team will need to consist of the right broker. I mean, after all, this is so you've run out of money. Your broker is going to assist you to be able to do it. But you're not going to need just one broker, ladies and gentlemen. You're going to need several. You're going to need somebody that deals in commercial finance, for which there are no rules. And you're also going to have to deal, of course, with people that are dealing residential finance. Uh, because, of course, we're going to be buying buy-to-let properties. We're going to be buying HMOs. We're going to be buying all sorts of things. But if you are looking to, to take that further and go into commercial to residential uh, conversions, just as Richard and Nina have done with their big 20, I think, 29-bed HMO, um, which is a phenomenal piece of, piece of kit, they, they, would have, they would have needed a commercial broker. They would have been needing to be dealing with a different group of people um, than, than, than that. But of course, most of you will be in, involved in residential to start with, and that's residential buy-to-let, which is an unregulated market as it currently stands. And so it's, it's actually becoming a lot easier to do that. Um, we, we just bought yet another buy-to-let. We've just bought buy-to-let very, very close to us down in, down in, down in, down in Paynton in Devon. And uh, we paid 290 for it. We could turn it into a seven bed HMO, just like that. And uh, we paid 290, once it's a seven bed HMO, gonna be worth around about just short of half a million. And the cost of redoing it up is around about 34,000. I'm not the sort of person that takes a property back to brick and starts again. I look for the right property. I look for the way that it's going to, to operate. I mean, even as a buy to let, it's going to, it's going to cash flow um, on the basis of the mortgage that we've got for it, and the mortgage is at 2%, um, we're, we're going to be cash flowing something in the region of 400, 450 pounds a calendar month just for that one particular property. Um, but it's got a multiple exit strategy, guys. It's got an exit strategy just as an ordinary house, as somebody might want to live in it. It's got an exit strategy as potentially an HMO. It's got an exit strategy of being a holiday home. We live 100 yards from the sea. I think probably in 50 years time, we'll live 20 yards from the sea, but uh, in which case this house will be, will, will be flooded. But uh, you know, um, I reckon the beach will come to me. So uh, we, we do that. You're also going to need the right solicitor. And again, it's going to be multiple parts of your team. It's all part of finance, guys. The right solicitor is gonna sort out the right aspects. And again, if you're going to do commercial property, then you're going to need to get a commercial a solicitor that is practiced in the art of commercial property. If you're going to do residential, an ordinary conveyancer will do. You can you can, you can pick those up almost almost anywhere. But if you're also going to go into um, go into commercial leases and things like that, you're going to need a contractual solicitor to work with the commercial solicitor in order to be able to um, in order to be able to work out all of that aspect. If you're going to uh, because that's important. And you know, it's, you're also going to need a, uh, an accountant. And, a, and again, the, the accountant should be practiced in the art of the business you're in. I actually run several businesses and I have several accountants. 
they're, they're all within the same practice, but I have an accountant that deals solely with the property and I have an accountant that deals with some of the other businesses that I operate. And, uh, you know, some of those are online type businesses. So we work with accountants that specialize in, in online businesses. So the right team needs to be built up around you in order to make your business as efficient as possible to make as much money as you possibly can from your business. It's the way of the life. So build up a great team around you. I mean, you are going to need builders and you are going to need um, all those sorts of architects as well. And again, you want to, to, to look for builders that are doing the sorts of projects that you or practiced in the in in the projects that, that that you're looking looking for. So we have we we have several different build teams, and, and we're always on the lookout for them. So we also have a group of handymen, and they know how to do to do various bits. And may I say at the very beginning, if you're going to go into into property, make sure that you put money aside for maintenance. Don't ever let it be said that maintenance isn't something that you need to do. So where does the money come from? So obviously you've got your traditional banks and your traditional lenders. I'm going to leave those out of the way. Um, I tend to deal these days mostly with challenger banks. So that's banks like Monzo, Revolut, Bung, Moneys, and uh, all sorts of banks like that. Uh, I also deal with corporate institutions as well. So, uh, you know, um, if, if you want to, to borrow some money, then, you know, M&S, Tesco's, all of those do, they all do commercial, commercial loans. I don't tend to use them very much, but they are there if you need them. Um, and personal loans. And I'm going to speak a little bit about that as we go through. Credit card lenders, I, I don't deal. I, everybody tells you to go and borrow as much as you can on a credit card. It's short-term lending and can be very painful if you get it wrong. So it isn't something that I necessarily advocate. But what I do advocate are business loans. And I think private loans, so angel finance. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that. I'm going to also talk a little bit about um, joint ventures. Now, joint ventures you have to be very careful about because there is legalese around joint ventures. The Financial Conduct Authority has a lot to say about joint ventures, especially between just two people. Between businesses, it's a little bit easier. But if you're going to do that, again, you come back to your, your legal team and your accounting team is that they understand joint ventures and they can help you sort out the contracts that are very necessary for that. The other things are funding circles, crowdfunding and syndicates. And one of the things that I sometimes do with the bigger projects is to collect a few people, angel financiers, who will then bring bits of money to the table. So that's very important as well. Other types of creative finance are vendor financing. Very often when I'm buying from vendors directly, I'm, I'm buying from vendors who have a lot of money anyway, and they are often willing to, after the deal is sort of uh, signed, sealed and delivered, they are willing to lend me some of that money back. So part of my angel funding comes from the vendors who I've just bought from. And that's a very, very powerful mechanism indeed in order to do that. But again, you need to be able to tie that up properly and legally. Um, but we've done that on a number of occasions where we've gone direct to vendor, very important that you, you always attempt to get to the vendor. 
And if that vendor is in a position where they're also investors, sometimes they will lend you money back at very, very competitive rates. The, 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 uh, the one we've just done is, uh, is, is at 4%. So not bad at all for lending, but you can sort of pay up to sort of eight, nine, 10% or something like that. And as long as the deal pays. And so it comes back to doing your numbers properly. The other great strategy for doing this is, is I don't like to buy the property necessarily. I like to, if I'm going to flip a property, say I, say I spot one to flip, like the one just down the road, I did think about it. Um, the, the owner was willing to um, let me go and deal with the property because it was in a bit of a mess. I mean, it's not a huge mess, but it is a mess. To, to actually go and uh, look, at, look at the property and to do it up and to sell it and then to split the profits at the back end. Now this property, which I've paid 294 or, or the, um, thereabouts, uh, will actually be worth around about 380, 390 when it's done up. So I could, and I only need to spend, as I said, 25 to 30 on it. So that means a 60K. You know, I'd be quite happy if I don't have to pay stamp duty, I don't have to go and get a mortgage. Um, I don't have to do a lot of things. I've just got to tie up an option contract. And again, I will need a specialist solicitor for that. So assisted sales can be very powerful. Rent to rent, again, I don't need a mortgage, but I do need to be able to go and uh, to negotiate with somebody. And what I can very often do, and I've done this in London a few times, uh, where property prices have been on the rise for some considerable time, they've tailed off a little bit at the moment. And obviously with COVID, that's, that's, a, that's an issue. But I've taken a house that was a, a property owned by a, a company who put their, uh, put, put, some, put one of their executives in it. Those, that, that executive no longer, no longer needs to be employed apparently. So therefore they've got this property. They didn't know what to do with it. I went along and I negotiated an option on the property on a rent to rent basis. I turned it into an HMO, it's a six bed HMO. I paid 2,200 pounds a month to them to rent it from them. And then I rented out to my six characters for some five and a half thousand. I've not had to find any stamp duty. I've not had to find any, any mortgage. And the house is worth around about 1.4 mil. So 1.4 million, pounds as a, as a property, I wouldn't want to pay the stamp duty on that. And probably I'm, I'm not even sure that my great age, you know, I'm pretty much knocking on 250 these days, uh, that I'm going to necessarily get a mortgage of that size. Probably would be okay, but why bother if you don't have to? And of course, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you're going to find out what lease, lease options are in the not too distant future if you don't already know. So rent to rent, Flipping, I've talked about that. I like to do flipping through assisted sales and, uh, uh, and do that. And also title splitting. So I like to buy, buy blocks of fats on a single title, split them up into separate titles and then mortgage each of them separately. Very, very good way of raising, raising cash in order to be able to do that. So that works extremely well as well in terms of where we're going. And of course, I also like to get property um, in, in, in terms of ready for something else. So when I buy property, I always see if, I, if I'm, especially if I'm going to flip it, is there a way in which I can enhance the value of that property by getting some planning permission? And once you become experienced, planning permission is something that you can work with. And I work with local planning consultants to find out 
what it is that, that the councils are going to wear because you're always having to, to battle uh, planning through the councils. That changes from time to time with government legislation and government rules. And uh, they, they're talking about easing that at the moment. Let's wait and see. I don't think that's in. I think at the moment, the government have got rather a lot on their plate with COVID and of course the dreaded Brexit. So ultimately guys, I think that's sort of the, the sort of broad brush, the things. I was going to sort of just as of indicate to you something to do with the, with joint ventures, because I know people are very, very interested in, in doing that. Just be careful guys, you need a contractual solicitor. Um, joint ventures are very, very powerful beasts but you need to know what your input is and what everybody else's input's going to be. You need to be able to share that information. It's all about how good you are at negotiating as well, because you've also got to know what your skills are against what the skills are. Is this person going to be involved in, in the project or are they just going to be a sort of a sleeping partner? When it comes to property, I'd rather they kept out of the way. I just, the, the one that, uh, that we've just been looking at is in London. It's a joint venture. I had to raise £250,000 to do the work to this property, but you'll see that it was worth it in a minute. And uh, I, I was helping some, some other people do this as well. So I saw a property in Kingston-upon-Thames. It was a four-storey property, but it was originally three. They'd taken the roof off, rebuilt the, uh, the, the uh, uh, floor, put the roof back on, and that property went from being worth 800,000 to 1.4 million. And it sold for 1.4. So when this property came up, I saw next door was a bit of a mess. It was like stepping back into the 1920s, guys. Uh, the kitchen had a drawdown sort of a, a cabinet with a flap for the food preparation area, which was probably less than a meter by three quarters of a meter. It had a butler sink with only cold water and it had a gas cooker. So it was mortgageable of sorts, but I didn't uh, think that, that, that that was going to wash very well. So, and that was on the market for about 755,000 pounds. And I said to the guys, um, because I got to the vendor eventually, and uh, the vendor who, who was, um, uh, it was a probate property, it was his mum's, and uh, he, he wanted 795, 755, and uh, I offered him 675,000 for it, uh, to which he said no. He said he'd been told that he was gonna get it. The property had also been on the market for six months. I think some people walk into a property and they say, hmm, interesting, uh, I, don't, I don't wanna do this amount of work. Well, because of next door, I said to them, why don't we do this as an assisted uh, sale? We'll do the property up, we'll make it look like next door. By the way, the plans had already been drawn up because the architect and I just had to switch them around. And uh, I had to raise 250,000 pounds to do the work because there was not only to put the floor on and to redo the roof, but it was to refresh the rest of the property as well. And we did that by doing a joint venture. And so we, we, we uh, because I run a, because I have a trading company in property, that's the way that we're going to do it. I was able then to use my contracts solicitor to draw up a JV contract. We got, uh, um, so it was going to be 50% to, to them, 50% to me. They have the money. I have the skills to be able to do this. So, and I also have the build team on hand to be able to do it. So that's the way that we did it. Um, 
But you also have to understand the risks of joint venturing as well, is that there, are, there can be losses as well as profits. And both sides have to completely understand that. And uh, what, what I will do is I'll, um, I'll send a copy of my notes to, to Richard and Nina that I put on so that you can actually read some of the in-depth stuff that we're going to do. Because uh, I have the feeling that we are desperately running out of time and you need to ask some questions. So um, those are just some hints and tips as to where we need to go. Um, uh, my favourites are raising money. When, when we started this and I told you we had zero money, then uh, we actually got my, we borrowed 130,000 pounds from my mum-in-law. I've never had to pay my mum-in-law back because unfortunately she's passed away since, but, uh, but, but there we go. But you will have to pay these people back. Um, having said that, I have housed my stepfather-in-law for some, well, we worked it out this morning, 22 years rent-free in a holiday villa in Spain. Um, by the way, that villa is available to rent, but you have to put up with him. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, so I think we've we, we well paid back the amount of money um, to, 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 to him as well. Um, I don't have time to tell you the interesting story of him and the carbon monoxide detector, but uh, there we go. That's and perhaps for another day. Um, the, the important thing is, is that uh, that's how we got going through Angel Finance. And that's the way that most people are going to have to do. How do you find your people? They come from all over the place. I would never have dreamed of asking my mum-in-law for money. She didn't have any to start with, or at least we didn't think so. But she had an unencumbered house, and we were able to raise the cash against the unencumbered house, let it out, because we were become obviously letting people. We paid the mortgage. She got the rent. So, um, because, because she now lives in Spain. So... We had 130,000 and we bought our first four HMOs. And those first four HMOs, we were, we were netting 8,000 pounds a month for those. So at the end of the day, you know, um, university professors don't earn a phenomenal amount, or they didn't when I was a university professor anyway. So, so at the end of the day, you know, that, that, that's the way that, that we did it. And we have never, ever stopped looking and raising money. So your friends, your family, people that you meet, um, I, I don't actually like coffee very much. I'm more of a tea drinker. But, you know, meetings in Costa Coffees and even Starbucks with potential angel investors becomes important. And I always say, if you've not got enough money, you're not drinking enough coffee. You need to get out there, ladies and gentlemen, and you need to network like there is no tomorrow. I'm not talking necessarily about property networks. Um, because everybody in a property network is looking, looking to raise angel finance. You need to get around and network with lots of other people. I actually like networking with councils and um, council forums because lots of traditional landlords go to, to landlord forums and they very often have more money than they know what to do with and very often they like to lend it to you. They also like to do assisted sales. They also like to do vendor financing any way in which they can get out of letting property in a traditional way. So there's lots of opportunity out there. And in half an hour, you just don't have enough time to be able to do that. But so I'm, I'm going to call a little bit of a halt to it there. And I'm willing to, to take as many questions as, as we can get in in the remaining time. But I'd also stick close to the two guys that host this as well, because they are also phenomenal at raising money. And uh, they, they've done it for their own properties and they, they, they are doing it all the time. And do you know what? 
I've heard Richard and Nina say from the front of the room, networking is one of the most powerful things that they have learned how to do over time. And you too. And as I say, get out there, drink more coffee. By the way, you are allowed tea, but steer clear of the alcohol. Okay, that's the important thing. Okay. David, thank you so much. Some really valuable lessons in there. Um, I um, I love the, um, the there's some th three strategies in there that I particularly favor. Assisted sale, it's fantastic. No stamp duty, you, you control of the property, you're giving some of the profits away, but you're um, doing it with virtually no capital down other than the actual renovation or conversion. So it's a brilliant, brilliant strategy. Um, vendor financing as well I, re I remember in the classroom quite a few years ago and i said i've got this property it's um, it's for sale just outside london they want 2.9 million for it but i think i should be able to uh, to do this as my, uh, my my first large project and so you laughed and everyone else in the room laughed as well and but um from that you started talking about vendor finance and um lo and behold um the one of the partners in, um, of the company that owned this building had capital didn't um, you know once they sold it released a lot of capital and didn't know what to do with it so that was a perfect strategy and you know I, it's, I've um, I've used that and deployed it many times since um, and then the other thing you were talking about JVs and it's so important to make sure you know who you're dealing with and I know you un underline that and it's I, I hear so many people they meet at a a, a property seminar and think they're going to business together without doing the true due diligence that they need to. And it's so important that people do that, isn't it? Um, absolutely. And, and, and there's so much legalese around JVs now as well with, uh, if, uh, I mean, if, if, if you suffer from insomnia, go and read PS 13.3 from the Financial Conduct Authority. It'll cure you of any of your insomnia, I can tell you that. It doesn't actually talk about property specifically, but it, it does say that if you're dealing with private individuals, they've, they've got to either be sophisticated investors, in which case they've got to, have, they've got to be earning, well, £100,000 a year net. Uh, it means that they have to have £250,000 worth of equity in, 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 in assets other than their own private property. And, um, you know, again, I wouldn't do it without a solicitor. And yes, it's going to cost you money. I mean, if you want to make money, you're going to have to spend it. You know, don't try to do things on the cheap all the time because you, you know, if, if you mess up a JV, and remember, I did say there are losses as well as profits. If you louse up a joint venture, you know, you could end up losing more money. In fact, one of the things that I always do is to ensure that I actually make less money than my joint venture partner. I will always, always, always attempt to pay them back first and I take the remainder. I mean, okay, if it works, it works and 50-50 uh, is fine or 70-30 or whatever ratio you want. But I always make sure they get paid first because that leaves them feeling, hey, they, you love them. Of course you love them. Um, it also leaves a great taste in the mouth for them and they'll come back and they'll do it again. Even if it, it meant that they made 75,000, you thought you were going to make 75, but you only made 25. You know, 25 is better than nothing at the end of the day. It isn't what you expected, but pay them first and make sure you do that. And, and they'll come back and they'll reinvest with you. And then, you know, as you gain, gain, gain more um, credence by 
by doing that. And, uh, you know, that's something. And always make sure you pay back your angel investors. Um, that's that's critical. But of course, then you're on a loan contract. So so it's a very different animal. You will make tend to make more money from out of angel investors than you will from joint venture partners. But it depends on the projects that you're wanting to do. I wouldn't use a joint venture part, uh, partner for something that's fairly small but I will use joint venture partners for much, much larger projects. And maybe also their ongoing income. You know, you, can, you could say, look, we'll pay you this amount of money as bulk money back. And I know that they're rich and Nina, you, one of yours, do you actually pay your joint venture partner part of the income that comes in from your property as well? So there's an ongoing investment there. And I'm sure that's also very powerful. But all of that, ladies and gentlemen, has to be tied up inside the contract that's a brilliant point thank thank you david i uh, when people buy a property so whether it's residential or commercial they always have to use a conveyancer and they don't even think about spending that money and it baffles me that when they want to get into investment agreements or joint venture partnerships they want to scrimp and cut corners and not pay for it it just does not make sense i can absolutely assure everyone um, that it costs a lot more to deal with it at the back end than actually investing in a good contract solicitor at the front end. So brilliant advice, David. Thank, thank you. There's one strategy I didn't cover, Richard, and that's how to make a spreadsheet work backwards, which I'm sure you can show them. And that too is a, a brilliant mechanism, you tell me, that I showed you that time in that hotel on the Zeti. It, it is, and we actually bought a really significant property using this strategy. So it's um, uh, Goal Search, I think is the... Goal Seek. Goal Seek, thank you. And so we, we have a very large cost model um, system that we use. It's, it's based in Excel, and it can actually reverse calculate all the numbers for you across all of the, um, the different formula that are in there. And so it's just press one button, it gets you your buy price. And um, the... Uh, the property that we were buying, the actual uh, f um, figures ended up, it was just a random string of numbers. Now, I use this as a tactic because um, I knew there were a lot of people interested in the property. And um, so when I submitted it, um, it was best and final bids. I submitted it and the um, uh, the, the, um, the administrator that was dealing with the, the sale of this property said, this is not number. It just it stood out, but it's odd. What, why? And I said, well, um, many people will actually just try and put a number in that works best for them. I've said, this is the number that anything more than that, I simply won't do the deal because you know, we have a baseline operating standard that we'll work to. We only operate to certain margins. So rather than me try and negotiate low and you potentially push me up, this is my absolute highest price I can pay for the property. And he said, oh, I like it. It's interesting because it stood out, we then were able to engage in negotiation. We actually bought it for a little bit less than that price actually because some things came about during due diligence but that was thanks to david that um so i use that tactic a lot so um it's more so for commercial properties or when you're doing seal bids and you're or having to submit tenders it's not so much for your um, high street estate agents when you're buying a standard residential property but it really works really well so david thank you um, no Right. Nina, I think Nina's going to be bringing up some questions for us. I am indeed, yes. Um, and one question of which you just highlighted there, actually, that that um, that I would like to propose to both of you is we, we touched then on on JV contracts and 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 spending the money um, on having those set up. Um, I think to start with, people like to try and start sometimes with their own money um, or they're busy trying to gather investors. 
Um, and they don't think of, as you say, having that set up. What importance, um, I'll come to you first, David, would you put on, before you get your first investor, having that legal document, you know, having a base that you can send over? Because we've all been there where you'll get an investor that suddenly says, okay, I'd like to invest. Can you send me over your investor pack or your, your contract? And you don't have anything to send them there and then. Um, obviously, I'm, 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 on average, the cost is around, I think, about £1,000 to have a decent contract set up. Um, but what, what would you say your importance on that would be? I think I think the look these documents. There are two documents which I think that you do need. I mean, if I am dealing with uh, with um, angel investors, um, the first thing is I want them to see that I know what I'm what I'm talking about. Even if now, for those of you that may, if you if you've all bought property, fantastic because you've all got deals that you can put on the table. And if you haven't bought property, then you can always talk about the one that would got that that got away. But and how to do that. So there's a bit of a brief to send to 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 uh, out to somebody. My brief, by the way, is a page. A lot of people thumb through about five or six pages, and they do all this an area analysis and everything to to show that they know what they're doing. It's it to me, it's not been necessary to do that. It's the bare bones. Here's here's the house. Here's the money. Here's the numbers. And, and for me, numbers mean absolutely everything. I'm a mathematician at the end of the day, they would do. Here's the, here's the house, here's the numbers. Um, here's why I think it's a great deal. This is what it's gonna be worth when it's done up. You, you know, at the end of the day, the person, who on the, the person who's gonna lend you money just wants to know they're gonna get their money back and, and how are they going to do that? They're not going to lend you 10, 20, 30,000 pounds if, if, if they can't see how, you, how they're going to get it back. Um, so that's the that's the first document is is that I, I I like to talk about what 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 I've done now. Obviously, the more experience you get, the easier that becomes. I have to say, my first uh, the first time we wrote the document, it was awful because I speaks good England, I does. It didn't make any difference because at the end of the day, they they are they're interested in. Yes, it's a house. Yes, we can see what you're going to do to it. Yes, we can see what you're going to pay for it. Yes, we can see from your comparisons. They're also important to put in the document. And we can see how, we're, how you're going to be able to give us some of our money back. By the way, I've got several um, angel investors who've never asked for their money back. We've been dealing with them for 14 years because they keep getting 8%. I mean, what do you get from a bank? Nothing. Um, so, so that you know, I, I I don't have money in the bank. Actually, I, I told a lie. I've just just sold the property, so I do have some money in the bank. Um, uh, but it's not out to being lent because we're going to buy another project with it. But it's important to do that. The, the, the second one is that we always use uh, now when it comes to a loan document, you can actually download them online because they just have to be signed and witnessed. Um, you can download those. Um, I, I get most of my legal documents from from an insurance company called Direct Line because I use their insurance, um, and uh, they've got a legal packs that, that that you can download and you can get loan documents and all sorts from them. Um, but otherwise, you can you can always use your ordinary solicitor. That's not going to cost you a thousand pounds. However, when it comes to joint ventures, it is going to cost you a thousand to fifteen hundred pounds which is not outside of what you would do if you were dealing with a lease option. 
you're going to be paying, you know, fifteen hundred to two thousand pounds to do to do that because it's a legal contract between you and some other party. The thing is, if you're going to make thirty, forty, fifty thousand pounds, maybe a lot more than that. Two thousand pounds is a blooming good investment to make sure that your investment and their investment is is all tied up legally. So I don't. I, that, that's the way I, I I see it. Exactly. Thank you. And Richard. I agree with David about the one page information. I see so many people that try and send a, a, a pack that just people don't read. So what, how much money you're looking for? What's the security? What's in it for them? And when are they going to get their money back? Um, and a bit about the project and a bit about you. So one page only. The the legal document, it's, it's imperative. Um, the a way to get around it, though, if you haven't got one ready yet, is just to write up heads of terms. So what have you agreed in that conversation? Then send it to a solicitor and they'll build something around that very inexpensively. Um, but always have something prepared. But I'm going to actually shift this question um, a, a little bit to, um, to, to, the, um, to the side, because um, what um, David mentioned is that you know, if you haven't got something to show track record, this is where a lot of people stumble. And then they think, well, how can it's chicken and egg? How can I raise capital if I haven't got a project to work on? Go and find a project, go to a property investing um, webinar or um, a, a networking event and go and find someone that's got experience and agree with them. Say, I'm going to bring this deal. Um, if you've got the experience, maybe the capital and do a JV that way. And I know so many people that would rather not do this. So you're almost sacrificing a deal, um, but you're actually then gaining the experience that you can then go and share because it's a deal that you have done. But so many people fall foul of this and they just never get out of the starting blocks. If you need to sacrifice a deal or um, take a sideways step, work alongside someone, look over their shoulders. If they're bringing the capital and the expertise, you'll probably get either a small percentage of the profit or a sourcing fee but you've then got the experience and then you can talk about the latest project that you worked on. Really powerful. So many people miss that opportunity and uh, then don't actually raise the capital and their property investing journey goes nowhere. So, so I, I took that off as a little bit of a sideways step. Yeah, and you could enhance on that a little bit by, by actually becoming an angel, in, an active angel investor on a project. So using perhaps some of your own money to just to be there and to, to get the experience of doing it. And then you've got that project under your belt. So, so maybe, maybe that's a way of, of, of getting, getting, getting involved and seeing what it is. I have to say, I am not a builder. I, uh, the, the idea of DIY to me is disaster in your home. Okay. Or, <laughs> or destroy it yourself. That, <laughs> If, if, if my wife Shirley, if she, if she says, um, uh, I think she gave me a job to do this afternoon. She said, I think that needs fixing, David. So I, I put it on the list for 20, 2035. So uh, I'll put it off for as long as I possibly can. I can't even drill. I've got a drill. I think it's a weapon. Okay. <laughs> I can drill a hole, uh, three holes in a straight line. And I've got a laser level, ladies and gentlemen. Wow. It doesn't make any difference if I got a drill. Rah! it'll just disappear off to the side so it's not quite as bad as that uh, but, uh, but 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 it's get, but it's getting close so I, I you know um I'm I'm I would normally say I dial six numbers but that just shows how old I am with a with a twirly, twirly, twirly thing doesn't it so, it's a so good job that's, for why, your... 
an investor then david and and not not a builder thank you both for those answers that's fantastic i have a question here um we'd like to know um for both of your views on how the hmo market specifically um will change in the next 12 to 18 months and whether you feel um that the demand will fall potentially or and to whether one and two bedroom flats may become more desirable because of the whole covid effect over to you david first yeah sure um well that that is a phenomenal question i mean uh, the, the crystal ball is a little foggy at the moment when it comes to that but there are several things out there which i think are important um I, in fact i was talking with a, a lettings agent the other day in an area where we do hmos and uh, he was saying to me, yeah, we can't let them if they, if they, ha- if they don't have ensuite bedrooms. And that's funny because all mine don't have ensuite bedrooms. I, I don't agree with ensuite bedrooms, uh, ensuite, uh, ensuites in bedrooms. Um, and, and since the local council is now applying council tax to ensuited rooms in houses that have had substantial work to them, um, and let's face it, band A council tax anywhere in the country starts at £100 a, a month. Very, very few are less than that. Then that's going to wipe out a significant amount of profit. So I don't do that. By the way, one of the things which I do do is I, I've got an eight bed HMO. I put in eight bathrooms. But they're not en suite. They're shared. And that completely fooled the VOA man when he came to look at this particular property. And he said, he said, oh, that's cheating. It's not cheating. You and you've, you know, uh, they said, well, you're going to allocate a bathroom to each person. I said, well, it doesn't matter whether I do or I don't. They're all shared. All the doors are in the corridor. It's not an ensuite room. So watch out for that because more and more councils are getting more and more strapped for cash, especially at this time. You know, I mean, the government is going to be strapped for cash. I mean, let's face it, you can't keep shoving out money on, on, on COVID forever and a day, it's going to come to an end. They're going to run out of money and be asking to borrow it back from us. I'm sure that's the case. Uh, I'm, no, I'm sure they'll tax us. But the, the issue is, I don't, and also you've got now a lot of lenders now raising the profile from being a 5% deposit to a 15% deposit. So I think there is a market for HMOs where people have to be mobile. So therefore, I think HMOs are still required. Um, the more and more HMOs you get in an area, there is another issue, and that's Article 4 planning regulations. So we also have to think about that, although um, most of my HMOs are in non-Article 4 areas. But it's, but Article 4 is not a no. you just got to understand the planning rules and regulations for Article 4, and you're going to get your properties through. We've just done an HMO in Portsmouth. In, that is the whole Ports, Portsea Island. Is and, and over the island is Article 4. We got it because we understand the planning rules and regulations which go there. So I think HMOs are still going to be required um, because people just can't afford to buy. And yes, there's also going to be a need for one and two bedroom flats. Absolutely. Um, one or two bedroom flats have, have some multi, you know, the, the other things. And also now the rules on Airbnb are going to become much, much stricter as well. We're already seeing that in Scotland. If you invest in Scotland, uh, you now have to have a license to operate Airbnb. Well, if it's not in now, it will be in fairly shortly. I, I did see that on Landlord Zone the other day, and I also saw it on the Scottish Landlords Association website. But, but you know, 
Sometimes it's right to convert a property into flats and sometimes it's right to turn them into bedsits, whatever you deem that to be. And sometimes it's right to just make them plain old fashioned HMOs. One of the things, however, that I don't do to my HMOs is I don't put en suites. If I do do en suites, they're only ever upstairs because I've then got the exit strategy of, of, of making it a home. Now, not like Richard and Nina's special big 29 bed HMO. That's specifically for a very specific purpose. That's never going to be an ordinary residential property. But if you but if you want to sell it back as an ordinary residential property, then don't put on suites downstairs, but do put small bathrooms downstairs so that they can share it. And uh, um, that, that, so that's important. So sometimes when I'm doing resident, when I'm doing commercial to residential conversions, I actually like to do part HMO and part flats because then you are getting different bites of different cherries. And I think that's a very powerful argument. Fantastic, thank you. And Richard, over to you. Thank you. Um, so, yes, uh, COVID has presented some uh, different views on shared or co-living accommodation. Um, but there, as David says, there's still very much um, a market for it. Um, sadly, we've seen through lockdown um, a number of um, uh, relationships are, have um, sadly broken up and people have started looking for either HMO rooms that they need to move into very um, quickly or one bedroom flats. Um, so it's still a demand there. Um, it's about making the property desirable um, and making sure that you understand that there's, um, you know, there's some concerns about people that are living in um, co-living or shared environments. There's still very much a demand, though. I'd be very careful about student accommodation at the moment, though, because of the don't way in which the universities have gone back. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, don't, don't do it. Stick to professionals. Um, the student market was I, very good years ago. It's not the same. Sorry, Richard, I interrupted you there. No, no, it's quite. I couldn't agree more. We've got a, a, a large student HMO. Fortunately, and this is all about um, foresight um, and making sure that you have multiple exit strategies. When we got planning permission on it, um, we made sure that we got full planning to allow for any um, uh, any uh, tenant type. Um, so with no students, uh, if we'd have only got student planning, we'd be in a real hurting position now, but we're filling up that property with um, professional tenants. Mm. Uh, so students, yeah, they're a, a, um, a special breed as well of uh, people. And uh, some, some of the things you hear about from your managing agent for student accommodation, uh, I'd stick to professionals is my view. Absolutely. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but it, it, you're so, it's uh, so, such an important point there made by Richard to, with the multiple exit strategies. Um, I have another question here um, from a lady who is just about to buy her first property. Um, do you have any advice on getting a buy-to-let mortgage and is it better to buy in a limited company? David, you first. Oh, right. OK, well, firstly, you know, I talked about having an accountant. I would certainly get one of those. Um, because they can give you financial advice, whereas I cannot. Um, so I'll, I'll give you my opinion. If you're just looking to do it, and this is your first buy to let, it may not be prudent to get yourself a limited company. You might want to buy the first couple of buy to lets, and it is only the first couple in, uh, on, on, on your own, um, in your name. That, that does have a knock on effect in terms of tax. Um, but uh, again, make an appointment, go and see an accountant, especially a property accountant, 
um, to be able to, to talk that through because they'll understand your financial position far, far better than I can. You might already be a high tax earner. Uh, you may not be. Um, and again, I, so, so I don't know your financial position and couldn't possibly say. So um, we own most of our properties in our own name because that's how we started. We now have a company that does buy to let. Um, and also very, very important until you've got a little bit of experience under your belt, um, some lenders, you will limit the number of lenders that will be prepared to lend to you through a limited company. They're gonna want to see some experience. Um, so maybe maybe the first one or two, and I would say that it might only be a couple, but again, you need to speak to your accountant. I'm not here to give you that sort of advice. Um, then you need, to go and, you need to go and talk through your financial position with them so that they understand the best position for you to be in and, and to do that. But my accountant said to me, don't worry about those. Uh, when, we, when we first started, you need to be, you need to, um, uh, you need to concentrate on, on knowing how to buy, buy the property and get them up and running. Once you've got a few properties under your belt, and you've got experience, you can prove your experience, and the, the, the banks that you will tend to then be using will be specials. They won't be your Lloyds, your Santander's, your, your Woolwich and all of those. Um, you'll be dealing with specialist lenders. Again, your broker also may be in a phenomenal position to say which, which is the easiest way for you to buy. You will notice that interest rates for limited companies are very often higher than they are for individuals. And uh, so, so, so that might be prudent as well um, in order to do that. Uh, we could have got a mortgage uh, if we'd have done it in our own name. We don't do that anymore. But if we'd have done it in our own name, the mortgage rate would have been 1.62%. For the limited company, 3.5. So it does affect your bottom line. Yep, I think that's about. about okay, it. Thanks, thanks, David. Uh, and uh, just from me, I think Nina's going to ask me the same question. Just from me, everything that David said. Um, there's one point that I'm going to pick up on, and you know, just to underline, make sure the accountant is a property-specific accountant, Absolutely. and then. Yep. Same with the broker. Um, make sure that your broker is investing in properties, not just a, uh, a broker that's um, picking the best product that gives them the most commission. So you want to get an independent broker, get advice from them, but you have to go and seek, seek professional advice on both of those counts. Yeah, make sure your broker is whole of market, not just a limited panel. We only deal with independents, so um, uh, that's that, that, that's very important. And you you want to you also want brokers that are not just one one person bands either. You want to dealing with a with a company that's got a range of. Uh, brokers within it that deal with certain things. So one will be, might be residential, the other one might be buy-to-let. We specialized when my wife did brokering on buy-to-let only. We didn't do residential um, in terms of your own home. Too much regulation around that anyway. Indeed. I have one last great question here, actually, um, uh, which is, what type of questions should you ask to ensure your broker and accountant is up to standard? Well, first thing is, first thing is ask, ask them if they invest in property themselves. Biggest, biggest thing that you can ask them and then how many they got. And I'll, I'll give you an example. I went, along to, uh, um, I went along to Barclays. It was to do a commercial mortgage. And uh, I, I happened to have a very good uh, commercial uh, person at Barclays. I'm not saying they're all bad. 
and they said, oh, well, we don't, uh, I can't do residential, pro I can't do buy-to-let property. We've got a specialist in the bank who is our expert on buy-to-let properties. But, so we said, well, let's have a word. And the very first question I asked him, I said, well, what's your experience in buy-to-let? And he says, I have two properties. That was it. That, and he became the expert in Barclays on buy-to-let. He knew nothing about the subject whatsoever. And then proceeded to tell me that my portfolio wouldn't work because of the way that it was structured. And we had something like 32 houses at the time and it was bringing in, well, I'm not going to tell you how much it was bringing in, it's just gonna make you jealous. Um, so, so the important thing was is, is ask them if they invest in property and then find out what their experience of investing in property is. That goes for the broker as well as the accountant. So my accountant is a tax specialist and a property investor. Um, now, I, I, I found her at a net, property networking event. Um, and I, I was very impressed with the way she spoke. I went up to her and we, 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 we had a, an hour's consultation where I was quizzing her and she said, you've quizzed me quite hard on my property. Um, so I want to know, make sure that they understand all the idiosyncrasies of the tax system because you will pay tax. Don't be afraid of paying it just don't want to pay too much. Um, and But don't ask them to say, can you organize it for me that I pay zero tax? Because that puts your head above the parapet as far as HMRC away. I just don't say, um, I want to pay the minimum amount possible that I need to pay in order to keep my, you know, to, to, to make sure that I'm doing it. Because we just sold a property which we personally own, so it's capital gains tax. Well, the rules have changed. Now you've got to pay capital gains tax within 30 days of selling a property. We sold a property last year, which suffered capital gains tax. I don't have to pay that until that, until this January, because the rules have changed. Now, good job I've got it tucked over there. That is the money that I've got tucked away in the bank. I'm not going to touch that because that is there for um, Her Majesty's uh, government to, to, to spend. I think I'm keeping them afloat at the moment. So I think that it's important to, to, to be able to do that. So again, those are the key questions that I would ask them. What is their experience? How, if, if, if it's a broker, how many people are on their books that are coming to them for buy to let? If it's an accountant, how many people do they have that they're looking after that are actually dealing with property as well? Because obviously it's not just their property, but it's also the range of property that, they, that, that, they, that their clients are, are, uh, are, are bringing to them as well so that they get to learn all of the different aspects of uh, um where people and how people are investing. Great answer, thank you, David. And Richard, over to you. Uh, I, I completely agree with David. Uh, you need to make sure that they're property people and uh, they know what they're talking about. Um, the only thing I'd add for, for both of them is um, with the accountant, I, um, I always want to have at least an annual um, tax strategy meeting with them. And obviously with property, each time you deploy a new strategy, um, you're gonna to wanna to make sure you're doing it the most efficient way. Should it be in the same limited company or should it be in a different limited company? Are you trading, is it income? So you want to have that um, fluid relationship where they are able to give advice uh, rather than you just being a transactional um, client that once a year uh, you send in some documents and receipts. And the same for the broker. Uh, I've um, managed to not use bridging loans on so many occasions because 
I'll um, sit down and sort of strategize and say, right, I've got this project. This is how I want to do it. What products are available? And my broker is exceptional. He'll, he'll, um, he doesn't say that, well, that sounds like hard work. I can't be bothered to uh, go and look at it. He'll be like, hmm, that's, I've never heard of a product like that. Let me go and find out if there is one. And then he comes back to me and says, I found one. And he loves it because I come up with his hairbrained ideas. He manages to find a product and then he's able to offer that service to his other clients as well. So you want someone that's going to be engaged with you. But um, the, the key point is David's point. They both, so accountant and broker, both need to be property people. Mm. Indeed. And actually, I apologize. I do have one last question, uh, which is the final one of the evening. Um, when you're dealing with a, a potential investor that, doesn't have property investments, but has a large pot of savings. Um, what percentage of their savings would you advise that they put into property investing? Over oh, well, uh, well, that's a really interesting question, Nina. They're going to tell you what they're prepared to, to lend. If, somebody, if somebody's got to say, uh, uh, I don't know, they've got a £50,000 pot that they're, 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 they've got, and they're going to say, well, you know, we're, we're not making any money. You can have the lot. I wouldn't take it. I don't think an investor should give you any more than, at least on the first deal, any more than 10 to 15 percent. They'd be they, they, they would be crazy. I was going to use the word stupid, but I don't like that word. They'd be crazy to lend you all of their money. It's too high a risk. Um, so 10 to 15 percent. If you've ever read, um, I think, Richard Branson, some of Richard Branson's books, he won't lend more than 10 percent. Uh, he won't let go of any more than 10 percent of his wealth on any one specific project. OK, his wealth is worth billions. But he, he, he understands that you you test the water first and then you slowly increase after that. So if somebody says, I've got 50,000 pounds and I'm willing to lend it to you, don't take it. Say, no, I'm only asking for 10. Even if even if it's the 50 you need, go find another angel investor. Because what it's telling me is that that person is not savvy financially. And that could end up souring a relationship. It could end up ruining your credibility. It probably ruins theirs as well. It would be crazy to do that. So if somebody offers you their life savings, you take a proportion of it, 10 to 15% tops. And then you say, well, you know, if we'll, we'll take another look at this when we've dealt with this particular project uh, product. Um, if you're dealing with financial savvy people, They'll tell you they've got 50,000 when really they've got 500. And then they'll come back and say, well, actually, that was such a successful project. Let's double the amount that I'm willing to invest on this particular occasion. And then you start to talk about joint venturing. Great, great answer, David. Richard, over to you. I, I, I agree. I mean, firstly, you shouldn't be offering advice to people because as soon as you offer advice, you fall into FCA regulated territory, even though the, you're not regulated. And if you fall foul of that, you can spend up to 10 years at Her Majesty's pleasure. So make sure, as David said earlier, you need to make sure that you understand the FCA regulations, whether you're regulated or not. Um, don't provide advice, but you can um, be a good human being and say, you know, if that's all their money, um, express uh, the risk to them and say that you can't you've got to be the ethical person um, don't get caught up in the moment and say well you know i need this money it's not the right thing to do and then the only other caveat is that when you're um, dealing with investors you absolutely have to and always ensure that you're treating their money more conservatively than if it was your own absolutely. without without question 
So I think um, that was the last question. So um, it's time for me to wrap up. David, thank you so much for joining us this evening. I've thoroughly enjoyed uh, listening to, to you talk and um, I didn't realise that uh, Nina was going to be throwing questions to me as well. So I feel very honoured to be sitting <laughs> alongside you and answering questions with you. I really, really do appreciate you uh, coming along this evening. Cool. Thank you very much. Well, that wraps up today's show. Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about what we do or to get to know us, please visit inspiredequity.com. Join us on our next show for more interactive property discussions. Until then, I wish you good health and continued success. Go out there and be inspired.